Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Lane. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, the little mind and the sun. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Edward Humes, who will talk about eco bands. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Rock Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty excited, actually. <laughs> you know, there's never a day that goes by that you aren't excited. Great movies coming up. Beam me up into the theater. <laughs> yeah, me too, except I have to wait till the end of the month. Essentially the greatest movie ever made. It's about future. <laughs> and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Eternity, in fact. Well, live long and prosper. Say. Indeed. I just read this very interesting story recently. Do you watch The Colbert Show? I watched it avidly, in fact. And in fact, there was a study that was just came out, and the people they interviewed, most of them happened to be conservative, actually thought it was real news. It was a news program. What, you mean it isn't? I wonder if people out there actually think we're doing a real science program. I, I don't think anybody could possibly confuse this program with a real science program. Not science fiction. <laughs> Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. <laughs> It's the famous Doctor Who techno babble. You know, I still haven't watched that. Yeah, I don't know if you can call yourself a real geek without actually having seen Doctor Who. On my list to do. It looks like my subscription to my favorite journal is back. The greatest journal in all of it history. It is the greatest journal. The Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. What does PNAS have to tell us today? Birth defects and, of course, one of my favorite molecules, the thalidomide. Right now, there's a lot of other interesting medical uses. One of these includes treating leprosy, and something more recent is to use it for treating cancer. And of course, it's not clinically available because of the risks involved. But some scientists have been trying to see what the mechanism that thalidomide induces when it's taken up by the body. A research carried out by Christina Therapontis at University of Aberdeen, Scotland, has shown that thalidomide, or more precisely, a slight variant of it called CPS49, eliminates the growth of new blood vessels. And so this means that in embryos, this could prevent the formation of limbs in you know, other parts of the body. Of course, this is also useful when they're talking about cancer growth, because if you can suppress the growth of new blood vessels, then that would kill off cancer tissue. Again, they'd also have to target it specifically to the cancer region. Right. That's, that's very fascinating. Maybe they can cut off right. the blood flow to my brain. I'm not using that. <laughs> Blaine's overrated, right? <laughs> of course, a simple tourniquet could do that as well. So I'm not. <laughs> so anyways, this is really interesting. They still want to find out what exactly the mechanism is because thalidomide turns out, breaks down into several different products. You know, presume this is where the next course of research is going to be is to look at the more specific mechanisms underlying thalidomide suppression of blood vessels. I, I mean, I'm fascinated already, and especially because it was in our very favorite journal. Right, where we need the blood. It's in fact the lifeblood of science, this journal. <laughs> right, it's the uh, the proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Yes. All righty, well, this one maybe doesn't have so much to do with the lifeblood of science or the lifeblood of organisms, but perhaps the lifeblood of the sun. I didn't know it ran on blood. <laughs> 
I don't know, the iron that makes it kind of reddish sometimes, huh? <laughs> yeah, the sun does not run on blood, for those who are wondering. But it does have cycles in which the um, magnetic fields shift, and uh, these account for oh, the, the solar cycles, sunspots. right? Sunspots. Yeah, the cycle over a period of about 11 years or so. So researchers have had difficulty predicting exactly when the maxima and minima of these particular cycles will occur. So now the uh, solar cycle for prediction, which is made up of a group of scientists from a number of groups, have turned out their prediction is when the sun is going to hit its maximum. Surprising prediction right now is that the maximum is going to be much weaker than previous maxima and much weaker than what most people would uh, expect. The local minimum reached its minimum at in March 2008, and the right. maximum, they say, is going to peak around May 2013, Okay, about nine months later than was previously predicted. These sort of cycles usually have, like, for example, communications because solar flares okay. and such. Right. Whether or not these predictions come true or not, that uh, remains to be seen. Predicting these sun cycles apparently is a very um, tricky business. Well, well, there's actually some people who claim that because the sun's activities are lower, this means that it's okay to put in more greenhouse gases because it will compensate for the less amount of radiation we're getting. And so we need global warming to help us through. Well, I, I knew global warming would be useful for something, so... Hey, CO2 is life, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, this was very fascinating work. It, it's a nice little article in a recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. Edward Humes will join us to discuss eco-barons. So, stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the challenges to the world's ecosystem are far-reaching. Indeed, we are all constantly inundated by the reports of near-catastrophe, which may cause some to wonder if anything can be done to reverse this trend. Will green triumph over greed? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Edward Humes. Mr. Humes is the author of several critically acclaimed nonfiction titles, including Monkey Girl, Over Here, and the bestseller Mississippi Mud. A recipient of numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism, he is currently writer-at-large for the Los Angeles Magazine and Huffington Post. His latest work, Eco Barons, The Dreamers, Schemers, and Millionaires Who Are Saving Our Planet, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Humes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. My pleasure. How worried should we all be about the environment? Well, I think the problem is that many of us are so worried it's almost paralyzing. You can't pick up the newspaper or listen to radio or watch television on any given day and not hear something about climate change or dying oceans or fossil fuel shortages and, and the list goes on. Really, the reason I wanted to write this book was because I was looking for and found a, a little more human and hopeful side of the story, because it turns out there's a lot going on that's positive. So the short answer is it, it's late, but it's not too late for us to dig our way out of the, the hole we've put ourselves one thing I was, people seem to find really interesting is the work of a fellow named Andy Frank, who's a professor in, at the University of California. He's known as the father of the 
plug-in hybrid car. He was one of the first to really develop this modern variant of a combination electric vehicle with a small gas engine to keep it running after the charge is lowered. Well, he can take Detroit SUVs and gut them and reconfigure them so they get 150, 200 miles per gallon. Basically, vehicles you can go a very long distance without burning any gasoline. And these are off-the-shelf parts. But the shocker to me was that for the last 10 or 15 years, there had been no real technological or economic barrier to transitioning to these kinds of cars, and yet it just hasn't happened. Uh, <laughs> I think there's uh, a lot of uh, reasons for that, but none of them are very encouraging. Uh, certainly most of the barriers have been uh, largely political. Political, fear of change, a fear of changing what has been a successful business model. But now I think that the realization is beginning to sink in that we've not only got to change those old ways, wasteful and, and polluting ways for environmental reasons, but also because it's an economic opportunity. It, it, maybe it's a way back to prosperity if we start pursuing these new and cost-saving technologies. Because, you know, waste costs a lot of money, and there's no more method of transportation that's more wasteful than a gasoline-powered car. Uh, indeed, a lot of others have argued that the alternative energy technologies will be the next big economy for the United States, yet we're lacking very far behind. What's really we're going to require to catch up with that of, say, other countries? Well, you know, back back in the 70s, it's the last time we had a president in, in office who was really talking about renewable energy and, and, and conservation as an important national initiative, Jimmy Carter, because we had oil crisis. We had lines at gas stations. We had a situation where not only were concerned about the environment, but it was a national security issue, not having enough energy and fuel that's homegrown and controllable within the, the borders of the United States. So Carter put in place a program to work towards energy independence. There were incentives, subsidies, tax breaks, and so forth to stimulate, a green stimulus, if you will, for renewable energy. And consequently, by the time he left office, we led the world in solar in wind and geothermal and all forms of renewable energy, leading in producing it and in developing the technology. And we squandered that lead by just gutting and killing those programs after Carter left office because the reigning philosophy of the day after the days of Ronald Reagan was government's not the solution, government's the problem. So, of course, these subsidies and incentives must be bad. But the result was we are now far behind the rest of the world in those vital technologies, and we're only now trying to regain the ground that we could have been building on all along. Certainly there wasn't uh, much of an economic incentive as well, given that gas prices were really cheap at the time as well. Yes, certainly that's been the continuing argument, but there's also an argument that that's based on a false premise, that there's a whole layer of hidden costs that we, the taxpayers and the public, bear, the health costs, the environmental costs, the fact that people who live near busy streets and freeways get higher rates of cancer. I mean, who, who pays for those consequences? Well, we do. So it's basically society has been subsidizing the use of gasoline at a cheap price for many years when, in fact, the costs are really much higher than, than anyone really thinks about. You know, we just don't pay at the pump, but we've been paying elsewhere big time. What do you think about some of the alternative energy technologies that have been forwarded thus far? Uh, one potential, of course, is uh, hydrogen as an economy. 
Well, that was one of the depressing things I found out working on Eco Bears. Actually, the, uh, some of the solutions that had been offered up, corn-based biofuels and the, the so-called hydrogen highway, turned out to be even worse for the environment than what we have now. There's a joke in the, among the renewable energy folks about hydrogen. It's the fuel of the future and always will be. It's, it's unattainable because right now the best way we have to generate hydrogen in large quantities is by consuming huge amounts of fossil fuels to do it. And basically you have to put in much more energy than you get out of the system. So hydrogen, while in theory it sounds great to burn a fuel that produces energy and uh, water vapor as its only emission, getting that hydrogen turns out to be really hard. And so it's not a viable solution for us and, and, and probably won't be for quite some time. We have much more mature technology now in terms of electric battery-powered vehicles. But there's a lot of bad information (laughs) out there that has left people convinced that the technology is inadequate, but that's really not true. Hmm. Do you think there are changes going on in the current administration to uh, push these newer technologies to the fore? Yes. Well, it it does seem that President Obama has made renewable energy, has put that back on the front burner. It's been something like 30 years since uh, Jimmy Carter was on top of the White House uh, calling the only press conference ever on the roof of the White House to show off his new solar panels, which were subsequently ripped down. But now we have a president who making this link between prosperity and conservation and, and green energy. So... And I think that's a valid link. And once you can unite the people's wallets and pocketbooks to an environmental initiative, that's that's a winning combination. So uh, it's very encouraging. Will it be sort of a challenge to overturn a lot of the uh, policies that had taken place during the Bush years? Yes. There was a whole spate of last-minute regulations that were passed, but also the entire eight years of the Bush presidency were unfortunately not very good for the environment. In fact, an organization I write about in EcoBarons, the Center for Biological Diversity, was was really one of the prime watchdogs on the the Bush environmental uh, policies. And really what they found was that the administration was violating every significant environmental law on the books, not just once or twice, but hundreds of times daily, (laughs) from the Endangered Species Act to Clean Air Act to refusing to obey Supreme Court orders to regulate carbon emissions. I mean, there is a very long list of out-and-out defiance, refusing to produce records and reports that the administration was required by law to produce. The litany of of environmental failings of the Bush administration is so long that there's not time on the show to go over them all. But it was a disaster for the environment, and it's going to take a long time to recover from that. You profile in the book a a number of eco-barons, the private citizens and new members who are trying to turn this around. What do you think is sort of a common thread linking all of their actions? Well, you know, I chose the term echo barons because it plays on the old concept of robber barons, these rapacious visionaries who, who stopped at nothing to build their own empires, but they also had a vision of how the country could be transformed. So they, there's a negative connotation there, but there's no doubt that they had an enormous impact on the country and on the way we live. And eco barons share the visionary aspect and the impact 
that they have had has also been very great, but they aren't out there raping and pillaging landscapes. They're out there preserving, conserving them and, and trying to rescue different parts of the planet and, and the environment. And uh, unlike the robber barons, who are all uh, wealthy sorts, I consider the term eco-bear more a measure of one's impact. So my book does have a number of very wealthy eco-philanthropists, but most of the characters in there are of modest means, but they have managed to have very large impact on climate change, on conservation, on protecting endangered species, and so forth. Certainly uh, one of the fascinating ones was Doug Tompkins, who gave up all that to try and turn things around. Yeah, well, he he made a fortune as the CEO and co-founder of Esprit, which was a dominant fashion company in the 1980s, and he took his money and moved to South America and started buying up rainforest in Patagonia, Chile and Argentina primarily, and has been donating that land and creating national parks and wildlife preserves and restoring important natural landscapes that had been degraded by different human activities, in some cases restoring species that were endangered and, and had been extirpated from their natural habitat and, and linking those habitats with wildlife corridors. He, he, all told, he and his wife, Chris Tompkins, have preserved more than two million acres of rainforest and grasslands in South America, more than any other individuals on the planet, and they're giving it away. <laughs> they are truly the opposite of robber barons, but they are, in, in their own way, a kind of new generation of Rockefellers did make a very great name for themselves for their philanthropy in their day. And uh, certainly the Tompkinses have pursued that model. And as you mentioned, they are not all uh, wealthy uh, individuals who are in this field. There are very common people like Terry Taminen who have uh, tried to change a lot of the laws that are going on in the uh, environmental program. Yes. One of the people I profiled, Terry Taminen, he was a Malibu uh, pool cleaner. He had a, had a pool business in the Los Angeles area, and he uh, decided he wanted to do something that more in support of the environment than clean pools, and he became allied with an environmental group called the Santa Monica Baykeeper, a citizen's group that, that patrols for pollution off the coast of Los Angeles. And he, uh, among others who, who trained him, was Bobby Kennedy Jr., and he became executive director of this, this group in Santa Monica a couple of years later. When Arnold Schwarzenegger decided to run for governor and was talking to his in-laws, the Kennedys, about who he might talk to in California about forging an environmental policy, who does Bobby Kennedy suggest but say, go talk to Terry Townsend, the ex-Malibu pool cleaner? And so this fellow became the environmental policy director for Schwarzenegger's campaign for governor and then became the head of the California version of the EPA under Governor Schwarzenegger, and since then has been the architect of what's become the world's leading climate change program here in California that's been exported to over 20 other states. So he's, he's had an enormous impact, perhaps more in, in terms of his impact on climate change than almost anyone else around. Uh, he ran into one of his former clients in the pool cleaning business, Dustin Hoffman, the actor, and uh, Hoffman kind of leaned over and said, hey, Terry, glad to see you're cleaning the big pool now. <laughs> and that's really good. what happened. It was quite an amazing transformation. Well, it certainly gives heart, I think, to everybody in that they themselves might be able to do something to help reverse this trend. What are some tips that everyone can do to sort of reduce their own impact on the environment? Well, I think that what we have to resist, first of all, is this notion that nothing any individual can do is going to make a difference. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, my vote doesn't make a difference. Yes, that's technically true, but there's huge power in everyone 
rowing the boat, so to speak. And, and so there's a lot that we can do as individuals, and, and some of it's just common sense. We waste more energy in this country than most other nations in the world consume. So there's very simple things we can do. We can weatherize our houses. We can. People made fun of Obama for saying inflate your car tires, but in fact you burn less gas if your tires are improperly inflated. As much as 10% of your gasoline can be conserved that way. You know, one of the things that we do here is we grow vegetables. We have a very nice vegetable garden, and, and people say, well, what's the big deal there? Not only does it taste better, the really big deal is whenever you can lower the distance your food has to travel to get to your plate, it has an enormous impact on the environment. Shipping food around the world is one of the big contributors to global warming. I and mean, not everybody likes to hear this, particularly uh, the cattle industry, but in fact, if we were to even slightly reduce our intake of beef in this country, which is, you know, the average American eats about seven times the beef that most nutritionists would say is healthy. But even if we just cut in half the burgers uh, that we consume, it would have an enormous impact on global warming because livestock, it turns out, is an even bigger contributor to climate change than driving our cars. So if we all cut our beef intake in half, which would still be deliciously unhealthy at the level that we eat it, it would be as if we all bought Toyota Priuses and started driving them instead of our regular cars. That's how huge an impact it would have on our climate. So, it's, you know, there's many other things, and if, if anyone's interested in seeing the full list, they can go to my website, edwardhumes.com, and, and read the list of 20 things that anyone can do to reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, we are only slightly out of time, but I'm curious, after having uh, gone through and investigated all the people who are changing the environment, what do you think really are the prospects for uh, the future? Well, I'm much more hopeful now than I was when I started this project. I think the value in looking at people who are really doing important work on the environment and on conservation and on developing new technologies that are greener and cleaner, the value in that is it's just inspiring. It makes you realize that it's not really too late for us to turn things around and that there's a lot of great solutions out there. It's possible to be a part of them in a variety of ways, large and small. And uh, we're at, at a watershed moment where if we move ahead on some of these clean energy initiatives and conservation initiatives, we're going to make the world a better place for ourselves and, more importantly, for our kids and their kids. I think the signs are encouraging that that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, I certainly hope uh, that's the way it goes. The new book is called Eco Barons, The Dreamers, Schemers, and Millionaires Who Are Saving Our Planet. Uh, Mr. Humes, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're very welcome. And you were just listening to Mr. Edward Humes discussing Eco Barons. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few moments, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. the game. It is called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. 
Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic green or greed. So for the following five people, the uh, Rockatron 5000 would like to know if you'd rate them uh, green or greedy and uh, a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Hughes, ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, very good. Here we go. Person number one, green or greedy, uh, Bill Gates. Uh, I'd go with green. I understand he's involved in considerable philanthropic efforts, some of which are encouraging conservation. And also, I believe that Microsoft, his company he formerly led, uh, that he founded, has taken on some pretty large-scale sustainability efforts. So I'm going to say he's green. Okay, very good. Uh, number two is media and uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Oh, he's got to be greedy, doesn't he? <laughs> Anyone who would have that horrible TV show of his, The Apprentice, just has to be greedy. There's no other explanation. Certainly, I think all the products he's using in his hair can't be good for the environment. <laughs> hey, well, that's true. Think of this free on just being, uh, uh, Well, person number three, then, is uh, the pop starlet Britney Spears. <sighs> Green or greedy? I don't suppose there's a, none of the above. <laughs> Well, she can't possibly be carbon neutral, so I guess I'll go with greedy, too. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, number four is talk show host Oprah Winfrey. I think o Oprah Winfrey's got to fall in the green category. Mm -hmm. And simply because she is usually on the side of social causes that uh, seem to be uh, for the greater good. So I would say uh, philosophically she's on the green side. Okay. Maybe she has a Hummer for all I know. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, green or greedy, uh, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Well, you know, I think the next edition of Webster's is going to have him under the <laughs> his picture under the word greed. So uh, <laughs> there's absolutely no doubt that he is uh, certainly what we have heard and read about him of lately puts him in the greed column. Okay. Although, you know, money's green, so you know, maybe that's the <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mr. Humes, I, I want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your book again, which is called Eco Barons, The Dreamers, Schemers, and Millionaires Who Are Saving Our Planet. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. And now it's time for this week's Question of the Week. And with us here is Captain Jimmy Kirk. My God, Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> thanks, Captain. <laughs> Mr. Tambourine Man. So what's out there in space, Captain? Space. It's the final frontier, Spock, crazy things in space like the neutron stars. We've boldly gone where no man has gone before into the neutron star, full of neutrons which are condensed into very dense star material. It can be logical, Spock. Hey, thanks a lot, Jimmy. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Croc Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grocks, you can email us at science at grocks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.